So far, we've explored what it feels like to play poker and to play it professionally. Today, we'll examine what the professional poker player actually does. Welcome to Third Man Walking. Burrow into any subculture and you'll find distinctive people. If you get really into, say, goth culture, or crossfit, or gaming, you'll find people with distinctive ways of looking at their hobbies and the world. Poker is no different. I don't personally know many top poker pros, but the impression I get from watching some of them on TV and YouTube is that they are different sorts of people, for better or worse. In many respects, they also aren't much like me. They tend to be highly intelligent people who have some mainstream interests, particularly sports, but who also have a pronounced tendency toward faddishness. They're heavily into things like cryptocurrencies, new diets, veganism, vlogging, streaming, libertarianism, yoga, polyamory, and EDM. I don't mean to judge. I think some of these things are fine, and interests like cryptocurrencies and streaming have served at least some players well and merge naturally with poker culture. But maybe these faddish interests reflect a yearning for meaning that these players aren't finding on the high-stakes poker circuit, which mostly involves long stretches in anodyne and highly commercialized spaces like casinos and airports. Some of these interests, and players' outspoken advocacy of them, also suggest a yearning for a highly optimized life. Just as a poker player might try to find the most efficient way to play a hand, they might seek a similarly frictionless approach to, say, nutrition. Many top players also broke into poker when they were quite young, and perhaps lack formal education and life experience to match their intellect. Their off-the-felt interests suggest an unusual openness to new ideas, and a search for new ways of channeling their intelligence. Of course, many of the top pros who are into these things are also the ones who are most active on social media, so maybe that isn't a representative sample. Perhaps a thread that connects even more top pros is that they're highly competitive. Many are heavily into Magic the Gathering, gaming, and prop betting. Dan Smith frequently tweets about chess. Pratush Padiga is a former spelling bee champion. James Opst put poker on hold to try to become a professional tennis player. Many other poker players were serious athletes at one point. Pros further down the food chain, like myself, might have different motivations. I put a lot of effort into being good at poker, but that hyper-competitive spirit that animates most of the top pros isn't always what motivates me. When you fill out a profile on the dating site OkCupid, you're asked something like, would you prefer that things be interesting or good? I'm pretty sure I answered good years ago when I was on the site, but the question always struck me as a profound one. I went to college and then grad school to study an artistic discipline. When I was in school, I discovered poker and made a bit of extra money playing sit-and-goes in tournaments online. By the time I finished grad school, it was the aftermath of the recession, and there were few opportunities in my field. I think one year I applied for 40 academic jobs, pretty much all the ones in English-speaking countries I was qualified for, and only got one interview. So, long story short, I moved to a part of the country near my family and took a part-time teaching job. I was also freelancing as a writer, and at any given time I had five or six gigs that I'd patched together to get by. It worked, but I was being pulled in a bunch of directions and wasn't saving much money. I had a lot of interesting in my life, and I valued that. But I didn't have much good, insofar as a pretty privileged white guy in America can lack good, and I didn't feel good was really available to me. 
I was still playing small tournaments in my spare time, and I'd make a little money here and there. Then one day in late 2015, I sat in a cash game. I dabbled with cash games in the past. I'd played 6-max online to stay sharp, and I'd sometimes play 1-2 or 2-5 at casinos. But it never took. I didn't know how to adjust to extremely passive live players, I didn't run very well, and I mostly just thought cash games were boring. There was, I thought, no sense in which things progressed. You just sat there and played hands while hours ticked away. This game I happened to sit in 2015, though, was not boring, even though it was a 1-2 game. It was extremely loose and wild, and you were allowed to buy in up to 75% of the biggest stack. Most of the players in the game had over $1,000. I just bought in for 300 a normal 1-2 buy-in. Frequently there would be pots like this. A very loose player would raise to about $15, and then there would be five callers, and they'd see a flop. But with $300 in front of me, I found that I could simply wait for a hand and limp, and then there would be the raise to 15 and five calls, and then it would come back around to me, and I'd go all in. This wasn't the most subtle brand of poker, but it was effective in this game. Within a couple months, I'd built a healthy bankroll, and I started taking advantage of the 75% rule, buying more and more chips and effectively making the game bigger for myself. From there, I moved up to 2-5 and soon started playing 5-10 when it ran. In retrospect, this wasn't a big deal, but after spending my entire adult life to that point trying to scrape together enough money to get by, it felt like I'd arrived. In one of the early levels of the old video game Super Mario Bros. 3, you can get a running start and fly into the sky where there are hundreds of floating coins. Suddenly I was in the clouds, grabbing as many coins as I could. Compared to the life I led before, poker felt like a money buffet. I'd always felt like I was teetering on the edge of things not working. Within a few months, my financial situation had completely changed. And now, a few years later, I'm so grateful for that. As it became clear that poker paid my bills more effectively than anything else I was doing, I quit one job, then another, until I had none. I moved to a bigger poker market last year, and now I just play poker. So to me, poker is, first and foremost, a way to make money. If I'd started poker earlier, maybe before I went to grad school, I might be less practical than I am now. High stakes player Bryn Kenny, for example, has talked about winning a million dollars by 21, then losing 90% of that within a week. Later, he had $3.5 million, only to lose all of it, plus an additional $400,000 within a few months. Those are insane swings by almost anyone's standards. But my sense is that many top players took significant risks near the beginnings of their careers, probably in part because they were really young and didn't have much of a sense of what their money meant. That's not how things are for me. I'm always trying to balance a desire, and somewhat of a need, to make steady money with a desire to push myself and improve. It's hard. When you're moving up from one stake to the next, you're trying to learn the tendencies of a new pool of players while also trying to figure out how to beat better players and dealing with amounts of money that are bigger than you're used to. If you typically play 2-5 and you have a bad day playing 5-10, you could easily lose 4 or 5 2-5 buy-ins. 
That can be tough psychologically, and that jump from 2-5 to 5-10 is especially tricky because 5-10 games frequently play with mandatory straddles that double the blinds. I always have more money than I need to play whatever stake I'm playing, but I still find it hard not to think about my recent wins or losses in terms of my rent or living expenses. At the same time, I have to try to challenge myself and move up. In five years, I don't want to be stuck playing the same games I'm playing now, just as an office worker probably wouldn't want to be stuck at one desk for too long. You don't even get raises for cost of living when you play poker. And if you stay in the same stake, that stake will just get tougher over time. So the only reliable ways to give yourself a raise are to get better or move up in stakes. After I moved, I struggled for several months. I still made money, but less than I was accustomed to. I thought at the time that I was having the worst run of luck I'd ever had, and I still think that's basically true. I was frequently on the wrong end of coolers, in which an excellent hand gets beaten by an even better one, and there were many hands in which I shoveled money into pots with the best of it, only to lose to unlikely hands by the river. But I was also putting a lot of pressure on myself after having quit my last job only months before. I was also still developing reads on a completely new pool of players, and as a result, I was making plays against them that I now realize were bad. My thinking at the time was that the new player pool was more loose-aggressive than the one I was coming from, and in hindsight, I can see that wasn't really true, at least not in big pots. So I was calling too much against a population I can now see doesn't bluff that frequently, just like most live poker players don't. When I look back on that rough patch, I did have bad luck, but if I hadn't adapted, I might still be struggling. Adjustments turned out to be pretty easy to make once I figured out what they were, but what if I hadn't figured it out? Would I have just kept struggling, and if so, for how long? When I arrived in my new city, I told myself I'd reevaluate how poker was going after a year, and if it honestly was going poorly, I'd look for at least a part-time job and maybe even a new career. Fortunately, I did get things turned around. But many poker players start having a hard time and attribute it to bad luck when they're actually just playing badly, and they might never figure it out or be able to fix it. For a poker player, the way ahead is always changing. My own strategy has changed considerably just in the past year. I now fold or call some hands from some positions rather than re-raising pre-flop, and I've tightened or loosened up in certain situations post-flop after doing a bunch of studying with software. I don't discuss those spots with my opponents, but I suspect the better ones have done much the same thing. Getting better at poker is like a game of whack-a-mole. You're constantly trying to identify problems and they never stop coming at you because every adjustment your opponents make is another furry creature you have to knock down. The toughest thing about all this is that, as a default, you're on your own. It's helpful to make friends with other poker players or get a coach, someone who has good judgment and can follow your thought process. If you can discuss hands with them and make sure you're not making subtle mistakes, that can help you keep your head above water. In the last episode, we discussed staking deals for tournaments. There can also be long-term staking for cash games, where an up-and-coming pro gets a bankroll and coaching, and the coach gets a portion of the player's profits. I often wonder how well these arrangements work for backers in 2019, since poker is tough now and they're constantly at risk of getting scammed, but such arrangements do still exist. 
Either way, it's so valuable to have people you can talk poker with. You need to be sure they're giving you good advice, and you need to really hear it. If you don't, it's easy to make the same mistakes again and again. Poker success comes so much more easily with discipline and humility. Discipline means being good with money. It means putting in hours at the table, which not all poker players really do since you're not going to get fired if you don't go to work. It means studying away from the table, and it means staying within yourself. Humility means knowing your edge comes in large part from getting the fundamentals right, not from making above-the-rim plays. I love a spectacular bluff or fold as much as the next guy, but day-to-day, those aren't the source of your profits. Good players often struggle because they play hands they shouldn't, justifying them by saying a fish raised or a fish was in the blinds. Most of us aren't good enough to play trashy hands profitably. If you want to play more hands to take advantage of a weaker player, you might be able to add about 5% of hands, but not 20. I've seen players who genuinely are very good play tons of hands against weaker opponents, but because their cards are so bad, they end up not winning much or breaking even for long stretches. There are, of course, other problems associated with playing poker for a living. You don't get benefits. I buy my own health insurance and pay the dentist out of pocket. You also don't get a 401k. I have an IRA and a separate retirement fund, but I have to remember to contribute to it. If you don't pay taxes, you might also have a hard time buying a house or making other big financial commitments. And by the way, a lot of poker players fudge their taxes. Many players I've talked to make fun of me for paying mine legitimately. They keep most of their money in cash and report significantly less to the IRS than they actually make. Of course, casinos report big tournament payouts to the IRS, but they don't really track winnings and losses in live cash games, so cheating the government is dangerously easy. Playing poker for a living also presents a number of lifestyle challenges, mostly in that it's generally more profitable and, in some locales, only really possible to play at night and on the weekends. Combine the nocturnal nature of poker with the many problems we discussed in earlier episodes, like the travel and the constant temptation of poker-adjacent activities like drinking and playing pit games, and you can see why poker players sometimes struggle to maintain romantic or familial relationships. The most important drawback to playing poker professionally is that it can be hard to quit. Not necessarily because gambling is addictive, but because, for the years you're playing poker, you won't have much to put on your resume. Many pros don't enjoy poker the way they once did, but they're still winning and their resumes are essentially empty going back years. So the choice for them might be to win $40 or $50 an hour playing poker or $20 in an entry-level job. They might be trying to get out, but can't quite figure out how. They'll often have vague plans about starting a business. A lot of them are in the strange position of making pretty good money in a profession that they can't easily leave because they aren't really qualified to do anything else. This problem is worse for the significant number of pros who discovered poker in college or before and never finished their degrees. If you're in poker and you want an off-ramp, you've got to create it yourself.
So I played a very long session today that illustrates how big swings in poker can be when the game is good and how maximizing your profit in a given session can sometimes mean managing the personalities and the dramas taking place at the table for better or worse. So this was a $5 blind game and I played for 11 hours, which is a lot longer than I normally play. But this game was so good that I didn't really feel like I could leave. For the first couple hours, the main source of action was this younger guy who I've played with a few times. He's a really happy-go-lucky, funny guy who's great to play with and has a lot of money and doesn't generally care if he loses it at the poker table. In fact, at one point today, someone asked him what he did for a living and he kind of shrugged and said, my parents are really rich, man. So this guy is here to have a good time and gamble and, and if he loses money, he doesn't really worry about it. He's also two to my right and is raising to 25 or $30 in almost every hand. So this is just a great scenario for me. And so in this hand, the player under the gun limps. Then uh, this player, the wealthy young player, is next to act and raises to $25. I'm two seats over and re-raise to $90 with pocket kings. It folds to the limper who calls, which is a little weird. And now the wealthy young player raises to $290. I've seen him do this a bunch of times, either today or in past sessions I've played with him. And when he, when he puts in this much money, he has something, generally. That something doesn't need to be nearly as good as pocket kings. It can be, you know, pocket jacks, pocket tens, ace queen, maybe ace jack. I don't know that for sure, but based on the showdowns I've seen from him, that's what I would expect. I also think that he's not really folding after he puts this much money in. So I just go ahead and move all in, and I have about $1,075 at this point. So I move all in, the limper folds, and the wealthy young player quickly calls and says, I got aces, man. <laughs> and out loud, I said, oh, really? And uh, he said, yeah, you think I'm giving you action with any worse than aces? And in my head, I thought, yeah, because I would for sure stick in $1,000 with ace-king, pocket queens, you know, lots of hands that aren't, maybe not lots of hands, but several hands that aren't aces. Uh, but okay, he's got aces. So the board runs out 10, 7, 3, queen, 6. And he turns over, not aces, but 10-7 of clubs. <laughs> so he wins the pot with two pair. And, you know, I, I kind of had to laugh um, because what he was trying to do was like the opposite of a slow roll where he was trying to make me feel disappointed at having run kings into aces. But... Then ultimately, at the end of the hand, when the showdown was supposed to take place, he was going to be like, oh, I'm just kidding, man, you're good. Uh, except that he ended up with a better hand even than aces once the flop came out. So, okay, stuck uh, $1,000 here very early on and end up losing a couple more significant big pots in these first 
first couple hours. One is to the same guy where I have ace five of spades and he has eight seven of spades on a board that has two spades on it. And he ends up rivering a straight um, while we both miss the flush. So I lose a pretty significant amount there. Then I lose an all-in pot against a different player who had a stack of like $500 um, on a board of ace-10-5 where I have ace-10 and he has pocket fives. So long story short, I'm stuck $2,500 or so within a couple hours. And this is pretty brutal. I mean, that's, that's a lot to be down in a $5 blind game. And it just seems like there's no way I'm going to be able to make it back from this. And I, I do get tilted. Uh, it doesn't affect my play too much, but I do get tilted. And I am massively tilted here in this spot. I just feel like I'm just buried. I do end up winning a pretty significant number of chips back a couple hours later when there's a straddle on, there are two limps, and I raise to $65 in the hijack with pocket tens. The straddle calls and both limpers call. So there's $260 in the pot heading to the flop, which was ace, 10, seven, with the 10 and seven of diamonds. So I have middle set, it checks to me, I bet $85. I think this could be a bunch bigger, but I bet $85. The straddle calls and the second limper calls. So now there's $505 in the pot. The turn is an offsuit eight. And neither of these players have been super wild so far. So I don't, so although this card does create the possibility of some straights being out there, I don't think either of them has one of those unless it's specifically Jack nine of diamonds. And if someone has that, okay, I mean, we're just going to play a big pot. So I bet $300, the straddle calls and the limper folds. So now there's $1,105 in the pot. The river is an offsuit seven. He checks, I move all in for about his last $800 and he ends up calling. I turn over my hand and it's good. So I win a big pot with a full house, tens full of sevens. And then the dynamic of the game changes completely. So I'm in a main game. There's a must move game, which means that players have to come to my table in the order in which they've arrived um, once seats become available. So a player I've never seen before comes to the must move or comes from the must move to the main game with about $5,000 in chips. And it's clear immediately that, that this player is quite drunk. And uh, there's another player who I play with quite a lot, a very splashy guy who's a lot of fun to play with, who arrives soon after. He's got something like $2,600. So I've got about $2,500 at this point. So I'm playing mega deep poker against both of them. It's just a great scenario, especially because the drunk guy is typically raising to $40 or $50 every hand. So this is not a hand I played, but this is a hand that is, is typical of the action that's taking place at this table. The drunk guy uh, raises to $50 from early position. The middle position splashy guy calls and the big blind calls. So there's about $150 in the pot. 
and the flop comes 10, 8, 4 with the 10 and 8 of clubs. The big blind checks. The drunk guy goes all in for $2,600 into $150. So now the splashy player in middle position starts thinking. And even though there's a third player still in the hand at this point, the drunk player turns over the ace of diamonds and says, I've got aces, man. You have to fold. I've got aces. Which, of course, immediately makes me think this guy doesn't have aces. Um, and since he's showing the ace of diamonds on a board of 10-8-4, it seems very unlikely to me that he has any kind of hand at all, really. So finally, the splashy player does call. The big blind folds. And the board runs out six of clubs, jack of clubs. And the splashy player goes, oh, no, you got me. You got me. I'm counterfeited. But... The drunk player won't turn over his other card. So the splashy player finally turns over four deuce of clubs. So he had bottom pair on the flop, turned a flush, and then had it essentially counterfeited on the river. And the drunk player finally turns over just a deuce that isn't a club. So he says ace deuce for nothing. And so no big deal. The splashy player just rakes in a pot of about $5,500, 1,100 big blinds with a four high flush. So this game is just completely insane. I end up uh, stacking the drunk player when uh, he raises to $40 in the cutoff. I re-raise to $170 in the small blind with pocket jacks, and he calls. The board comes 854 rainbow. I bet $200 he moves all in for something like $800, $800, which is what he's down to at this point. And I call, the board runs out ace, five. I turn over my hand, and it's good. So this guy has lost the entire $5,000 he came to the table with. He reloads for another $1,000, loses that. Reloads for another $1,000, loses that. So at this point... Um, at least based on what he came to the table with, he's down seven or $8,000. Unfortunately, his drunkenness is becoming a problem. He's become increasingly belligerent. He's being really abusive to the dealers about things he perceives them doing wrong, even though they're actually doing nothing wrong. At one point, he crumples his cards up and throws them back at the dealer as a way of folding, and the house has to replace those two cards. Some of the dealers are getting upset, you know, in, in a professional sort of way, but it's it's clear that this guy is understandably bothering them. A couple of other players have gotten a little bit upset, although most of them are quite happy he's in the game. And so I start opening a line of communication with the floor guy who I'm friendly with and being like, look, this guy is down like $8,000. If you can do what you can to make sure he doesn't get kicked out tonight, that would be awesome. And the floor guy kind of says, like, yeah, I'll, he's being really abusive, but I'll do my best. So what he ends up doing is whenever the drunk player does something uh, especially awful to someone, he gives the guy a one-round penalty or a five-hand penalty and basically tells him to take a walk. And the guy keeps coming back. So for a while, it's sort of a decent situation until this drunk player 
starts saying something in starts saying things in Spanish to a player across the table who is uh, a native Spanish speaker. And I don't know what exactly is being said because I don't really speak very good Spanish and because the communication is going across the table from me. But the Spanish speaking player is getting upset and a player next to him is kind of getting upset too. So when the drunk player gets put on one of his five hand penalties, I end up saying like, look, you'll get no argument from me. This player is awful, but if you guys could just like put headphones in or something, this guy's losing so much money, which is not a thing that I really like that I said, simply because my motivation when I'm at the table is to make as much money as possible. But that that's not necessarily that what motivates someone else who's playing poker. Some people are there to play a strategy game and to engage their mind and gamble a little bit and don't necessarily worry about whether they win or, or lose and don't like being disrespected at the table. And that's a totally understandable and reasonable point of view. But from my perspective, based on the things this guy has said in English, he's been pretty terrible all around to the other players and to the dealers. Uh, but he hasn't said any one thing that's so over the line that we, we can't all just tolerate it and let this guy lose some more money to us. So I, I reach a sort of agreement with, with the two players and with the floor guy where it's sort of tenable for a while until this guy just gets so all around abusive to so many people and so many people get upset that the casino actually ends up ordering the floor guy to kick this guy out of the casino. So when this happens, like six players immediately grab racks and the game instantly breaks. So it's clear that most of the players in the game were, were pretty happy to have this guy there. But the game breaks and we're all in line for the cashier. And I end up talking to a different guy who was at the table who tells me that what the drunk guy was saying in Spanish was like, F your mother, your mother's a prostitute, things like that, which was actually way worse than any one thing he said in English at any point to anyone, or at least that I heard. So that made me feel immediately pretty bad that 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 this player was saying these things to this Spanish-speaking gentleman, and then I'm telling him, hey, just put some headphones in, don't worry about it, um, not really knowing what he said. So, you know, this massaging a certain situation in order to maximize profit in the short term is a way of looking at playing poker and being at the poker table, but it's not something I'm especially proud of. And I think in the grand scheme of my life, I mean, this isn't one of the better things that I could be doing today. It ended up working out. Um, I was stuck $2,500 and I ended up making three or $400 for the day. So yeah, I did it. I mean, I, I maximized my dollars per hour or whatever, but I don't feel especially good about it as a person. And I felt, by the way, I felt even worse about it when I went out to the parking lot after cashing out and this player was in the parking lot. The drunk player was in the parking lot going to his car. So it was clear that he was about to drive drunk and there was nothing I could really do about it. 
There's also the fact that he lost several thousand dollars to us while being really wasted, although he did bring several thousand dollars to the casino and was a terrible person, so whatever. So overall, just not feeling super happy about the way things went down today, and next time I see the Spanish-speaking player, I need to at least apologize to him and maybe even buy him a drink or something like that, because yeah, what happened today really shouldn't happen. So what is a professional poker player really? What does the pro do? Well, most obviously, the pro plays poker well. But there's more to it than that. The pro is something like the CEO of her own business, deciding how her money will be invested. Will she play Hold'em or PLO? Will she play at this casino or that one? Will she play 2-5 or 10-20? The pro cares for her mind and body in whatever way she thinks is best and decides when, where, and how long she plays so she stays mentally sharp. And in live poker, the pro entertains the other players at the table, or at least facilitates the game for them. She gives action, at least to some degree. She avoids problematic topics of conversation like poker strategy, religion, or politics, and of course, not discussing politics at the poker table is itself political, since poker involves weird dynamics regarding gender in particular, as we discussed in an earlier episode, the waitresses in short skirts and so on, but you're only perceived as being political if you mention it. She helps the dealer keep the other players on track. And she helps keep the atmosphere at the table light, or at least doesn't bring the table down. The pros that are best to have at the table are the ones who actively create an entertaining environment. That's not always easy, since pros play a lot of hours and since many of us aren't the most naturally social people. Good poker players are frequently introverted and somewhat nerdy. But some pros can be outgoing, tell jokes, and do things like play bomb pots or take coin flip type side bets to enhance the atmosphere of gambling at the table. I played with one pro who was willing to play blind hands for up to $2,000. Each player would get a hand, and then there would be a full board with no further betting, and the winner would take the 4000 or 6000 bucks in the middle. I couldn't stomach that personally, but the recreational players loved how this pro would gamble with them. The pro also helps protect the ecosystem. A fellow pro recently asked me for advice about a situation he'd recently dealt with. Two other players at the table had bought in for more chips than the game's maximum starting stack, so my friend did the same. Then, all three players got in a hand together and, in the middle of the hand, one of the other players tried to get all three to chip down to the maximum buy-in. This player was a regular who knew what he was doing, and I highly doubt he would have done it with, say, pocket aces, when he'd want both himself and his opponents to have as much money as possible. The dealer ruled that all three players had to chip down in the middle of the hand, and my friend wondered whether to fight it. He would be within his rights to call the floor person and ask them to rule that the remainder of the hand had to be played with the amount that all three players had started the hand with. For me, the question boiled down to whether the player trying to get everyone to chip down was a winning player or not. If he's losing, if he's putting money into the poker economy, then let him get away with this. Whatever edge he might be gaining here will come back to you in the end. So, what is the pro's role in the broader economy? Many might see the pro as a small disappointment. Here's someone smart enough to consistently outwit other smart people. Someone that smart ought to have something valuable to contribute to the world. Instead, the pro has a made-up profession that's part day trader, athlete, 
and court jester, all while contributing little of value to humanity. That bothers me, but I like poker, and I like this lifestyle. And as a friend pointed out to me recently, just because I can do this doesn't mean I would have been capable of doing anything. I'm pleasant at the poker table, but I am an introvert, and I wouldn't be good at anything involving sales or business or really anything that might require me to frequently use the telephone. I wasn't good at science in school, so I couldn't have been a physician or a chemist. I don't think I could have worked on Wall Street because patterns in the investment world wouldn't have interested me. I was good at teaching and might have stuck with it had there been any incentive for me to do so. But mostly I play poker because it's interesting, because it gives me a lot of freedom, and because it pays relatively well. It's hard for me to think of many other careers that would have worked out as well for me. In the next episode of Third Man Walking, we'll discuss the context in which pros and recreational players alike operate. As the game gets tougher, how much hope is there for players who intend to make money? How is the poker ecosystem changing, and what does that mean for the future of the game? Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking and via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. 